Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. David Perry here, different presenter, different sort of Naked Reflections. We're looking at the aftermath of the American presidential election contested and rumbling as it is. If anyone had any doubt that governing by tweet was a bad idea, it should have evaporated when, early in his presidency, Donald Trump declared that climate change was a hoax orchestrated by the Chinese. But, as it turned out, his tweet went viral. The Cambridge psychologist Sander van der Linden addressed the potentially troubling implications of social media sharing on a huge scale in the Naked Scientist's podcast, Optogenics, Lighting Up the Brain. You know, one of the things that I'm really interested in is what I call the psychology of consensus. And so we, we, we tend to pay attention to consensus in a lot of domains. One is the social domain. And so the way it works is that when something, whereas there's an implicit consensus or social proof that something is important, we, we tend to um, interact with it without deeply thinking about it. So if something's been shared a million times and the video has been viewed, you know, two million times, um, people simply share it without thinking where something gets shared. Much like a virus, it gets replicated at a very high rate, and at that at that rate, it might overturn the, uh, the the rate of actual news. And I think intervening in that process is actually one of the most crucial elements to try to prevent people from sharing information before they've assessed the facts. Hopefully, will science will win out. By the way, Sander van der Linden coined his highly appropriate simile before the COVID pandemic, and it's an indication of what weird times American politics have been going through. Anyway, Trump has tweeted his tweets and America has made its choice. It remains to be seen if he'll try and jigger with the electoral college processes. But with me to discuss the aftermath of the presidential election so far are Professor Anthony Badger, sometime Master of Clare College, Cambridge, and author of the book FDR, The First Hundred Days, one of Gordon Brown's favourite books, by the way and Dr Ruth Lawler, a junior research fellow at Queen's College, Cambridge, who specialises in American politics. Before we get into the nitty-gritty of electoral politics, I wonder if the main victim of the Trump era has not been, quite simply, truth. Tony. I think when Obama, in his recent memoir, talks about truth decay, uh, I think we have a, a really serious problem in the United States. It's not that politicians lie. Uh, That's something that we're familiar with. But that they should lie on such a scale. It's estimated that Trump makes 20 false public statements a day. It's the lack of accountability for that. And it's the sheer brazenness and shamelessness of it. And it's apparent effectiveness. I could talk at times about uh, we've been there before in the United States, and that, that history is relatively optimistic about how things work out in the future. But at the moment, I have to say that the institutions of America, which I have great confidence in, in, as it were, in constraining Trump, the courts, the uh, media and Congress, none of these seem to be terribly effective in the world of social media. During the campaign, Barack Obama made the point that character matters. 
I think he meant by that that the institutions are there, but that we can't stop bad actors trying to subvert them. I think that it's pretty clear uh, during the Trump administration that the robust characters of democracy that many Americans believed were there are not actually as robust as they might have liked them to be. I'm not sure I would agree with Obama that character is the uh, most important factor and that Trump is somehow an aberration or an exception in terms of the way that he's eroded particular norms. Um, To link this to what Tony was saying earlier about the pathological and pernicious nature of Trump's lies, I, I think about really consequential lies of previous presidents like George Bush's claim, for example, that weapons of mass destruction were in Iraq and that this could be the justification for war. Could I make the point that um, when I say we've been there before, in particular in terms of Trump, we've been there before in the, in the Cold War in 1950 with Joe McCarthy because McCarthy was making outrageous claims. McCarthy, like Trump, never apologised for any false claim. He accepted the belief that... Uh, If uh, an allegation was obviously false, you didn't apologise for it. You simply made a new allegation on the grounds that the rebuttal never catches up with the original lie. And he was very effective in that uh, for four years. And of course, there's a linear descent from McCarthy to Trump in the form of McCarthy's aide, Roy Cohn, Trump's mentor in New York as an unscrupulous New York lawyer. In the end, McCarthy is going to be brought down by the courts, the media and his own party, the Republican Party. In particular, in terms of the Republican Party, I see not very much signs that that's going to happen in Trump's case. They've been very slow, haven't they, coming out of the traps to push back on his claims. It's going to happen now, but surely common decency should have kicked in much sooner. Well, I think a lot of commentators have pointed out that sometimes cruelty is the point. Um, and certainly the Republican politics since 2010 has seemed to take on that character. If anything, the results, the 73 or 74 million or so people who turned out to vote for Trump this time vindicates maybe the Republicans' willingness to sign on to that kind of agenda because it shows that those politics are extraordinarily productive. There's a very real um, right-wing revolutionary grassroots movement that has been very effective. Um, and if it can establish power for Republicans in terms of things like um, abortion, for example, or other kinds of conservative policies that those groups uh, care about, including immigration control, then I think they believe that uh, it's worth it to put up with the indignities of a, a president like this one. And it's clear that uh, the business community or many businessmen were prepared to support Trump despite his excesses because it was going to bring a tax cut economy. It was going to bring much less regulation. And they were prepared to take the consequences. It's interesting in this latest iteration since the election, that it's some of those senior business leaders who've broken ranks, urging a peaceful transition, because um, they see the potential damage that's done to their cause. But what Ruth says about the base, the Republican base, it seems to be almost untouched uh, in terms of a popularity of the president since he took office. I mean, his approval ratings amongst his base never slipped very much. Uh, and, and nowadays, between a half and two thirds of Republicans believe that the election has been stolen, which in face of all the evidence is astonishing. We tend to deplore career politicians. One thing that career politicians are used to is actually they're used at some point in their careers to losing. And uh, Trump has never had that experience. David Foster Wallace's 1996 novel, Infinite Jest, looked forward to a time when a sports-obsessed president of the USA became the star of his own reality TV show. 
prescient or what? I think there's something very compelling about this interpretation. There's something spectacular about the narrative arc of US history at the moment, particularly as embodied in the figure of Trump. There's always a danger of pathologizing someone like him, but at the same time, someone who is so desperate for attention and for um, adoration, who then falls very disgracefully from power amidst celebrations in the streets, represents something that is is quite uh, literary, I think, in its dimensions. I've also had the sense, observing the United States from here in the UK, that there is a sense of watching the collapse of the US, both as uh, an imperial power, but to some degree as a, a functioning, well-governed state. There's a spectacle, there's a something visual and, and compelling about that for outside observers. I think the danger for liberals and for those of the left or those who want to reestablish some form of uh, legitimate kind of politics that enfranchises the most people that um, reduces inequality is to not revel too gleefully in this kind of humiliation of Trump, but to actually work to build a real grassroots politics that to, to do more than just, I think, on social media to mock those who have lost here, because as Tony points out, the dangers are quite uh, significant in terms of the numbers who don't believe that the election uh, was fair. Those people also have guns um, and they have a a very specific uh, set of politics that we should be very uh, wary of. Moving on to more technical matters, uh, the principle of the Electoral College seems somewhat anachronistic. Well, it may may seem anachronistic, but I mean, it's been there a long time and to change it requires constitutional amendments and constitutional amendments in the United States are extremely difficult to pass. And uh, I mean, I frankly have never seen the thought that there will be much chance of ever changing the Electoral College. And until recently, we were relatively happy with candidates winning the presidency who did not have a, a majority of the popular vote. I mean, there was quite common in the late 19th century. And of course, Bush was in that position in 2000. What's unusual is the the disconnect, it's the scale by which uh, Clinton won the popular vote by two or three three million votes, and Biden is going to win it by five or six million votes. That disconnect between the possible different results in the Electoral College is really severe. And the other thing to say is that it's not merely in the Electoral College. I mean, it's in the Senate. The Senate is over-represents rural small states. And within the states, on the whole, rural underpopulated areas are overrepresented in, in state legislatures, that all of that has a knock-on effect for policy. Is it time to move to majority vote system? It would be very difficult, and it certainly will be very difficult in terms of the Senate that Biden would have to work with. But I think the, the clear thing here is that if you're someone like Wyoming or South Dakota and you have equal representation as California, because you both have two senators um, and you need the states to ratify any constitutional amendment, there's no reason why Wyoming would agree to do that, because they would um, be giving up some of their power. And we know that some of these states and and the people who live in them, I mean, the populations are, you know, one million uh, or less, um, quite small, but they also are are deeply suspicious of coastal elites and of uh, urban centres. And so um, that provides, I think, even less of an impetus to uh, to change the system. But it's clear that for the US to be a, a true democracy, that that a, a one person, one vote system makes an awful lot more sense. Um, but as we've, we've probably all heard a number of times, the US likes to call itself a republic, not a democracy, because there's a deep suspicion historically of the people, of, of rule by, by the people, of a kind of tyranny um, of the majority. But in actual fact, what we have now is a rule by, by minority. One of the things the current election has shown is that actually state governments can be quite robust in defending their own election laws, you know, in the face of Republican officials in states 
reacting angrily to the attempts by the Trump administration and his lawyers uh, to intervene. So that's a positive sign. I mean, the American system is also underpins a historic lack of faith in the federal government. The, the question of trust in the federal government comes back to our original point about truth and fact. In the early 1960s, 75% of Americans believed the federal government could be relied on to do the right thing. Uh, and that figure is probably about 10% now. And that's extremely corrosive. Ruth, you mentioned the 2000 election and the George W. Bush victory. I was interested to read that two of the many attorneys the Republicans hired to sort out, in inverted commas, the Florida recounts were Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett, both now sitting in the Supreme Court. I'm thinking back because I, I was in Yale the year that Brett Kavanaugh was being confirmed uh, at the Supreme Court and the, the sort of uh, insurrection on the campus. He's a, he's a graduate of Yale Law School was um, quite profound. It was a, a, certainly a particular moment to be there. Many observers and pundits have suggested that the reason that Trump was so eager to get his Supreme Court nominee confirmed before the election was that there might be a prospect of Amy Coney Barrett sort of legitimating any challenges that he made to the uh, election results. I think too this impact to sort of govern from the Supreme Court is a huge problem in terms of American politics that exists on both the right and the left. But yeah, it's not surprising to see, I think, the Republican Party uh, line up kind of old, uh, reliable allies. It also shows you the extent to which these institutions are completely partisan now, that they sort of don't uphold the fiction any longer, that they stand above politics or above democracy to act as reliable arbiters of political conflicts like these ones. One slightly more optimistic note is that the Bush lawyers who were involved uh, in 2000 um, notably uh, Benjamin Ginsburg, who was the Republican chief counsel. They're the ones who poured the, poured the coldest water on the, and r- ridiculed the current um, Giuliani strategy uh, on behalf of the Republican administration. The 2000 recount in Florida was they had something like 500 Republican lawyers from some of the best law firms in the country working on that case. And of course, it was headed by James Baker, a formidable political operator. And Rudy Giuliani is no James Baker. I don't want to sound facetious, but can you explain how Trump got so many women to vote for him in 2016, given what he said about women on tape and how he behaved? It's a mystery to me. This is a really important question because white women uh, are the largest portion of the electorate. And I think this question is really about white women, because as we know, black women voted for um, Biden and vote for Democrats at about 90%. Whereas, as you say, in 2016, white women voted for Trump in at about 53%. And that's uh, increased to 55% in 2020. But uh, in recent years, if I'm not mistaken, white women have only voted in large majorities for uh, Bill Clinton and Lyndon Johnson, who are kind of Southern uh, masculine kinds of politicians. So my takeaways from that are that white women are very willing and have historically been very willing to prioritize their class and racial interests um, over any sort of solidarity with other women across uh, racial lines. In terms of Biden getting across the line, as it were, in this election, he just about did it with white women in terms of the suburbs. One of the factors in winning Georgia uh, was the white suburban voters in Atlanta. And indeed, even in Michigan and um, Pennsylvania, it's the Detroit suburbs and the Philadelphia suburbs, he picked up votes that the Democrats didn't pick up last time. In addition to the heavy African-American voting in the inner cities, that was just enough. But I take Ruth's point. I mean, it is only just enough. And 
one of the things I think the puzzles in, not puzzles in 2016 necessarily, but the, the hatred of many women for Hillary Clinton, it was striking. And college educated women in such large numbers could vote for Trump uh, in 2016. This is Naked Reflections with me, David Perry, and my guests this week, Tony Badger and Ruth Lawler. And we're discussing the aftermath of the American election. We talk about the separation of powers in the American political system, but the independence of science is also important. It's worth remembering that President Trump advocated injecting bleach to protect against COVID infection. But even before such inanities, there were already some tensions between the White House and the science community. Here's Molly Jahn of the University of Wisconsin at Madison, speaking at an American Association for the Advancement of Science meeting in 2014 and recorded as part of the show Naked at the AAAS. Recognizing the critical public good in research and in science and in knowledge transfer is an insight that we have lost track of to some extent in this country. And um, the transparency that science creates is, is very, very important, especially in a democratic society. Turning back to politics, the system of checks and balances seems to have turned into permanent gridlock. But perhaps twas ever thus. Yes, you can argue that gridlock on the whole is the norm in American politics. Uh, if you're looking for presidents with strong congressional majorities who get legislation through since the Civil War, you're talking about a very few number of years with Franklin Roosevelt in the 30s, with Lyndon Johnson in the 1960s. That is not the norm. What's striking this time, perhaps, is the scale of the polarisation between the parties preventing even the sort of most routine cooperation and the seeming inability to work across the aisles in any way at all. If you talk to senators from the 1970s, they remember a politics in which the purpose of being in the Senate was to pass laws, and to pass laws you had to work across the aisle. And now, as one South Carolina Republican said the only purpose in walking, working across the aisles is to butt your opponent in the head. And uh, that's a very different mindset. Do you think Joe Biden can revive bipartisan politics? I would question whether getting back to bipartisan politics is necessarily what we want to do, if that means that, that it's going to take the same form as the 1950s. I mean, Tony spoke earlier about McCarthy. And if you think about, you know, the victims of the kind of Cold War consensus of the 1950s and 60s um, in terms of civil rights or dissidents, socialists, those kinds of groups, if the compromise means holding hands across the divide with segregationists or with with racists and white supremacists, then I, I would question whether that kind of politics is worth it. Although I know that more moderate Democrats have put hope in Biden as the kind of person um, that can do that because he is he is the president who has the longest Senate experience of any uh, previous candidate. And so he has spent a huge portion of his career working with, with Republicans, which has um, alarmed some others, especially on the left, although we might remember that Kamala Harris um, criticised Biden for that during the primary debates before she came on as his vice president. So my fear is that when we talk about restoring bipartisan politics, it seems to be Democrats always making the compromises. I'm not sure that we've seen overtures from Republicans about um, what kinds of concessions they're willing to make. I would agree with uh, much of Ruth's caveats there, and particularly about a false nostalgia, a so-called golden age of, of bipartisan working. On the other hand, bipartisan working did bring about uh, the Great Society legislation 
bring about civil rights legislation in the 60s. And I think the other thing it brought about, what you can disagree about with the fine-tuning of American foreign policy, it brought about a certain consensus about an internationalist uh, foreign policy. And it also brought about the space for technocratic government. I mean, that is people who actually know what they're doing, running government agencies. And it comes back to the point about the scientists. You know, people who actually believe in the science and and experts are willing to defer to them. The anti-intellectualism of modern American politics, anti-intellectual fundamentalism of modern American politics, and we have echoes of it over here, is deeply troubling and and has been there for the last 20 years. Coming on to fundamentalism, I'm amazed by the enthusiasm for Trump amongst evangelical Christians. I saw some footage of people laying hands on him and praying that was truly alarming. What's that all about? Ruth will probably know more about this than I do, but it's a shift that's been there since the mid-1970s. Ironically, it's a shift in public terms that started when there was a born-again Baptist in the White House who was disowned by the uh, Southern Baptist Convention. Historically, since the 1920s, there had been a sort of religious truce in America the public religiosity was not the, the name of the game. Religion was a private, understated affair, and people saw the dangers of the, the huge anti-Catholicism of 1928. And the evangelicals, who had been since the 20s the most vigorous group uh, in American religion, nevertheless, had, after their experiences in the 1920s, had rather shunned politics. And then in the 1970s, they looked at what the liberal churches had done to mobilise for instance, in favour of civil rights legislation in the 1960s, and, and, and said with abortion, school prayer, and issues like this, that it was time for evangelical organisers. And they've been extraordinarily successful. And in many cases, the evangelical church is mainly, in, in particular communities, is almost like the uh, head office of the local Republican Party. Yeah, absolutely. It's like the labour movement or a trade union uh, kind of organising base for the Republican Party, especially since Reagan and, and the 1980s, where there was sort of a consolidation of different religious denominations under the Republican Party. So the historic divide between Catholics and Protestants um, goes away in terms of uh, a religious consensus around what the major issues for Christian or the Judeo-Christian, um, as they call themselves, which is important. I think for me, uh, much of it seems to be about abortion. I think that's the big question for these groups um, today. And I think that desire to roll back legislation, more progressive legislation like Roe v. Wade, it subsumes all other kinds of politics. It has a lot to do with um, white religious people's racial anxieties about the prospect of the US becoming a majority minority nation. It's, it's difficult to overestimate the passion that abortion raises as a dominant political issue for many evangelical Americans. And evangelical Americans have always been willing to um, put their faith and passion on behalf of segregationist candidates and on behalf of anti-communist candidates and on behalf of economically conservative candidates. And that's, that's always been the case. Now we've got a Catholic president, of course, only the second one. I'm afraid I don't know what's his position on abortion. Is it what I should expect? Uh, no, it isn't. there were Catholic bishops in this last election telling their congregation it would be a sin to vote for Biden. Having said that, they were disowned often by the archbishops, particularly the archbishop in the diocese in Biden's home state. Well, there's a very clear split within the Catholic Church in the United States, uh, as indeed, of course, there is between evangelical Protestants and other uh, more liberal uh, Protestant groups. Perhaps I could end this podcast with a naively optimistic question. 
Could the Biden victory mark the beginning of the end of this rump of strong men we've seen so much of? Putin, Erdogan, Bolsonaro, I could go on. Certainly right to include Trump amongst those uh, strong men. I'm, I'm optimistic about some things because I think that to be a historian means to believe in the capacity of people to change their own circumstances and to change history. So I am overall optimistic about the prospect that um, grassroots movements like Black Lives Matter and it becomes possible, the sort of beginnings of labor organizing again, the kind of uh, left wing movements of Bernie Sanders and Occupy and, and the legacies of those seem to be um, inaugurating. But as long as we remain with the conditions that we have right now, which is rampant inequality, global climate catastrophe, and, and raging war and disease as well, if you add the COVID pandemic on top of it, as long as um, left wing liberal or Democrats, um, as long as they don't have an answer for some of those questions, I think there will always be um, a, a kind of move towards strongmen. And it's true. I mean, one of the failures of the Democrats in this election was that they really had no answer to, um, you know, what a lockdown would mean for all those people in the US who don't have health care, who don't have uh, any sort of unemployment insurance, whose livelihoods would be devastated by um, by COVID. Um, and that might explain some of those uh, shifts over to Trump that we haven't fully uh, accounted for. The ability to um, devise policies that appeal to the left behind, which is clearly part of the reason why Trump won in 2016. It's by no means clear that we've yet got to the stage where we can devise those policies. I think if one's, uh, again, as Ruth says, historians like to believe that people will change. Looking back, I mean, there have been periods when American leaders have appealed to the worst in their countries. And at various points, they've elected leaders who appeal to the best uh, in America. We have some hope that that will happen again. But some of the gloomiest periods in American history, for instance, I mean, as Ruth said, the 100 days, but in, just before Roosevelt took office in 1933, you had um, pundits like Walter Lippmann saying that the situation was so desperate that America needed some sort of dictator. and what you got was Franklin Roosevelt, in many ways, a supreme Democrat, but nevertheless capable of bold, decisive action. In 1960, everybody was decrying uh, gridlock and the deadlock of democracy and the inability of democracy to cope with uh, the challenge of the Soviet Union and the challenge of uh, poverty. And you got John Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson. There is grounds for, in the past, hope. And one of the things that I always think of in terms of Roosevelt and Kennedy, is the appeal to uh, a sense of public service, making public service an honourable career. People flocked to Washington in 1933 to serve in the New Deal. They flocked to Washington in 1961 um, to serve in the New Frontier. Now, there are all sorts of problems with all of those programmes and uh, developments. Uh, but the idea of good people in government is one I think we, we have a chance of getting back to in this new administration. I declare this podcast closed. No recount, and as far as I'm aware, no legal challenges. I'd like to thank my guests, Tony Badger and Ruth Lawler. And we'd like to hear from you at nakedreflections at wolf.cam.ac.uk. Let us know where we're going wrong or what we're getting right. If you'd like to catch up on our back catalogue, which includes episodes on Einstein, Nudge Theory racism and many more you can find more episodes of naked reflections and subscribe to the naked reflections podcast wherever you access your podcasts or at nakedscientists.com slash reflections 
Ed will be back next week with some more guests. 